This episode is brought to you by Case Filters. Look, I travel the world with my camera and I can use any photography filter I like, and I've tried them all. In recent years, however, I've landed on Case Filters. That's Case with a K, K-A-S-E. Case Filters are made with premium materials, HD optical glass, shockproof, zero color cast, round and square filter designs, magnetic systems, filter holders, adapters, step-up rings, everything I need so I never miss a moment. And now my listeners can get a 10% off the Case Filters Amazon page when they visit beyondthelens.fm forward slash case and use the coupon code Burnaby10. That's beyondthelens.fm forward slash case and coupon code Burnaby10 for 10% off your Case Amazon order. Case Filters, capture with confidence. Hi, I'm Richard Burnaby, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Lens, where I speak with inspiring people from around the world about photography, the arts, travel, conservation, entrepreneurship, and creative culture. In this episode, I'm joined by master landscape photographer, William Neal. For, I don't know, close to 30 years, William has been my favorite landscape photographers, or at least one of them. And after one look at his portfolio, you can see why. He's one of the most expressive photographers of the landscape that I know of, and someone who always inspires me to want to improve my work and be better. We talk about his time with Ansel Adams in his gallery in Yosemite, writing for Outdoor Photographer Magazine, and photography gear and technology. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding about that last part. Before we hit the record button for this interview, I asked, as I ask everyone, is there anything you don't want to talk about? And he said, I really don't like talking about photography gear and the latest technology and gadgets. And I said, perfect, neither do I. <laughs> so instead, I ventured into the mind of William Neal, what inspires him, what gives his work such emotional depth, his passions, persistence, creativity. And I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I did and having it. And so now, without any further ado, here's William Neal. Hello, William. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Richard. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to have you. I've been a big admirer of your work for, oh, I don't even know. Um, I guess it goes back to the 1990s, your outdoor photographer magazine column on, on landscape. That's what it was called. Correct. Does that go back to the 90s? I started working with the magazine in 1986 and uh, wrote articles for them. And then um, in 1997, I started writing the column. And I've now written almost 150 of them. So my memory is not bad. You actually do go back to the 90s. I was going to ask you. And you're still writing them now. Correct. Your columns are always extremely insightful. And Galen Rouse was always my favorite. But you were close second, so that's that's a good company. I often wondered how you were able to find new content and new ideas to write about so consistently. That's got to be the hardest part. Yeah, it's very hard. Uh, the more I write them, the harder it gets. But you know, there there were basic principles that I could see in terms of teaching. Uh, you know, a lesson about simple things in photography: watching the edges, or watching the background, or hundred other things. So I would usually go through my own images and draw a lesson from the image that was going to be used in the column and base this one, the story about making the image, what my intention was, uh, maybe a little bit about how I did it with, with a view camera or whatever gear that might have helped me 
along the mm -hmm. way, but not much about gear, mostly about communicating what I was experiencing and, and uh, you know, how I put a frame around it. I think they were invaluable lessons. And I think they're archived on the internet too. If you're, if you're not um, a subscriber to outdoor photographer, I think they have an archive of your, of your columns on the internet someplace, if you did a search on it. Uh, yes. They don't go back all that far, but the, the best way to, to read and see photos from that column is the book that came out a couple of years ago called light on the landscape, right? Where we collected, um, 60 essays with photographs from the column. We spruced them up a little bit, updated them somewhat, added a few images to you know, further illustrate a point. Uh, but that's that's already in its second printing and it's, it's been very successful. Yep, I have that book myself. Awesome. Your photography career really began in Yosemite uh, back in the late 1970s, I, I believe. And we'll get to working with Ansel Adams at the gallery shortly. But where did you grow up and what led you to Yosemite? I grew up in California, uh, born in Pasadena. And then I lived in the Bay Area during grade school. And I also I went to high school in Virginia. While we lived in California, we visited national parks. Uh, a favorite place for my family was the Tetons. But we'd also come to Yosemite and we took road trips up to Banff and Jasper and back again uh, as a kid. So I was introduced to national parks at an early age. And uh, when I graduated from high school, which was in Virginia, I uh, the day after graduation, I jumped on a, a plane and a train and ended up in Glacier National Park at the age of 18 and started working there as a summer job uh, before I started college. And somehow you made your way down to Yosemite somehow. <laughs> well, getting a start in, you know, during college, you know, wanting a, a, needing a summer job and wanting to work in a national park. I worked two summers in Glacier National Park and two summers in North Cascades. I graduated from uh, the University of Colorado in Boulder and needed to find a job. And I, I didn't really want to go get an office job. So I I had a background of, of working for the Park Service, and I put out applications and got a job offer in Yosemite, and that was in uh, 1977. Mm -hmm. I basically lived in or just outside of the park since that time. You know, the, the reasons were, were obvious because of the landscape, but also just had a longer season being in California, warmer weather, um, more population. The uh, Yosemite's open all year round, so I could um, I was more gainfully employed. How did you start working at the Ansel Adams Gallery? How did that come about? Well, I was starting to get serious about making photographs and and using 35 millimeter slide film. The only place to get film processed was through the gallery. They had a connection with Kodak down in Palo Alto, and I would turn in my film, and then it would come back, you know, a week or so later. And I got to know uh, a longtime friend of mine, Louis Kemper, who mm -hmm. was working there at the time. I was working seasonally for the park service. So I, I worked 180 days. I didn't have a full-time job. And uh, one day in 1980, I came into the gallery turning in film and Lewis wanted to leave the job and I was looking for a job and he um, kind of passed it on to me. So I started working there in, in 1980 and I worked there through 1984, which was the year Ansel passed away. 
I can imagine you've met some big time photographers while working there, including Ansel. Yeah, Ansel was a great influence and his workshops uh, came to town uh, every year. And I, I got to meet a, an amazing group of photographers from Ernest Haas, um, Joel Meyerwitz, Paul Caponegro, Arnold Newman, Joyce Tennyson, a long list of amazing photographers. And I got to see their work. I got to know them a little bit, hear their lectures. Like, so I got exposed to um, what I call, you know, a, a master's degree in photography, just being exposed to a lot of uh, excellent photographers. And so Adams is like this mythical figure in the world of photography, almost like a godlike figure. But he was human, of course. What was he like? Um, the times when you met him, was he out, like his personality was an outgoing, introverted, studious, a jokester? Yes, and yes, and yes. He was hard, hardworking. <laughs> he was a jokester, and he was uh, easy to to talk to. He was a workaholic, but he also was very social. So he, uh, a good friend of mine, Chris Renier, worked for him, and and you basically had to be ready for Ansel to go to work seven days a week. You know, mixing chemistry in the dark room, whatever he wanted to do. Mm -hmm. But he would always have a, a cocktail hour, and he'd have people over at that time. And, and so, uh, the social aspect was, was a big thing for him, uh, as well. And he was, um, uh, definitely gregarious and, and very active. Wouldn't call him laid back. Let's put it that way. Okay. No, I, I really don't anything about his personality. Yeah. In a good that must've been at a time hang, just hanging out with Ansel, having a drink. You and I, uh, both agree that the tech and uh, the gear talk is kind of boring Necessary under some circumstances, like teaching a workshop or a class. But you know what? Not here. We can talk about other things, like getting into the mind of William Neal. What do you think? Uh, I'll give it a go. <laughs> pretty scary thought, but I'll, but I'll, I'll help you along. <laughs> oh, this is going to be fun. You've done a, um, done a fair amount of travel. I mean, I've, I've seen some of your work even in Antarctica in the uh, retrospective book. True. All fantastic. All fantastic, by the way. But to my eye, it seems the work of yours with the greatest emotional depth are the images right there near your home and around Yosemite. Is Would that be fair to say? Oh, absolutely. It's just the place you know is the place you're going to do the best work usually. Is, and... is it more than that, though? Is it more that you, because you know the areas or maybe a deeper emotional connection is what is what do you think the reason it's not just you for matter it's all the photographers as well seem to create the, the more deeper emotional images for the places that they have this deeper connection to well when i was hanging around ansel's gallery and listening to them the masters of of that time they were a little bit intimidated by yosemite and they would say well i'm not sure i really can do anything new here with a uh, Ansel has done it sort of attitude, and and I was in my mid twenties, and, and I was not gonna, I was not gonna buy that. So I just set out to to, and this is something Ansel taught is to try to find your own way of seeing a place, and and so I was inspired by photographers like Elliot Porter, who did a lot of small scenes, uh, photographers like uh, Minor White, who made some very mystical sort of landscapes. Brett Weston, who did some wonderful abstract uh, black and white photography. 
And I just thought that that was uh, something I could work on, try to do in color. Mm-hmm. And so from the very beginning, I, I was making into intimate landscapes uh, in Yosemite and, and even before that in Boulder. I think a lot of what works for me is just the, the state of mind of, of being in a place that's that I call a sanctuary. It's just a state of mind that's I have a lot of uh, beautiful nature outside of the park near me that I don't go to just because it doesn't feel the same. It's it's uh, somehow being in in Yosemite Valley, especially with the granite walls surrounding you. It's um, it's easy to get away from the tourists most of the time. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily traffic, but park your car and and walk a few minutes, and you're by yourself. It's just a matter of immersing myself in, in the landscape and you know I found a way to make a living and uh, being at Ansel's gallery was was part of that because there were lots of photographers doing making a living in different ways some were surviving off of grants uh, a good friend of mine like Jerry Yulsman was a uh, art school professor in Florida uh, Alan Ross who worked for Ansel was had a commercial studio just started to see that there were there were ways to uh, make a living and still, you know, not not be too pressured by the the commerce side of things. You mentioned intimate landscapes, and that's usually not what people think of when they go to the Yosemite Valley. Looking through your portfolio, I noticed you don't have a lot of wide-angle landscapes with those in-your-face foregrounds and a big sky. You've mostly embraced the intimate scene, the intimate landscape, smaller vignettes of a bigger scene. Can you talk about why that is? Is this something you consciously are doing or is it just the way you see? Well, it's it's hard to retrace how it evolved, but it, it's, uh, yeah, just taking parts of a scene is really, you know, what I would find is, you know, a design element or a certain kind of light or a certain texture in a grass or something that was just what struck me at the time. It was just following mm-hmm. my instincts to to do that. If you look at my Lightroom catalog and you check lens usage, you know through the filters, you know probably, you know uh, out of say I take uh, five thousand images in a year. I don't know what it is actually, but percentage wise, you know ninety five plus would be a telephoto zoom. And I believe it. Uh, my sixteen to thirty five comes out, you know basically a few times a year. So depends what's in front of me. I have a, a 24 to 105, so I can zoom in a little bit with that. But in, in Yosemite, you know, to find a distinctive story to tell, so to speak, is is by extracting, isolating. You know, maybe there's clues to where you are, but maybe they're not. And I was never too worried about that. My wife would say, looking at an image, you know, she, I, I love that image, but it doesn't look like Yosemite. And I mm-hmm. I would just shrug and so it it didn't deter me to not show the whole scene. And I, I did run into situations in in the stock photography days where uh the Sierra Club wanted to do an a box set of note cards of Yosemite scenes and they invited me to do it. And I I'd lived in the park for maybe fifteen years. And I started submitting things that I thought were of high enough quality and and Basically, I didn't have enough icons to satisfy their <laughs> their demands, and I was very proud of that. <laughs> Would you say that that the the big 
wide-angle landscapes say more about location, whereas the intimate landscapes say more about a photographer's personal vision? Oh, definitely true. Definitely true. It's it's a it's a not, and this is something I teach about using longer focal lengths is that you know it allows you to, like I said, extract part of a landscape, but it's also extracting part of the landscape you saw, not necessarily what I saw. Mm-hmm. So it's it's by by definition, a, you know, picking out a section of a landscape. So I, if I go to tunnel view with a group, you know, everybody's going to take the wide view and sometimes that's exactly what it demands because it can be so spectacular in Yosemite, but people switch over and start using telephoto zooms, which I encourage them to try, you know, the photographs start to become much more distinctive. They more saw personal. this part of that cliff yep. and I saw that part of the cliff and they were attracted to this light or that pattern or that graphic shape. Yeah. Well, it's your first time you, 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 you're going to go to that big view first. Right. And then once you've got that, in the bag, so to speak, you start looking for more personal, personalized views of what's appealing to yourself as a photographer. Exactly. exactly. When you're out there looking for images, what are you thinking about? Or are you even thinking at all? Do you have a, like a particular methodology you're using or, or what are your thought processes when you're out looking? Well, there, there are certain things that lead me to be in the valley at a certain time. It might be a time of day or the dogwoods are, are in bloom or waterfall flowing or fall color. So generally I go when I think conditions for photography in general might be good, but I I don't um I don't plan much with my photography and it's really about just enjoying myself and and putting the experience ahead of the results. Right. And especially when you can go to a landscape repeatedly, you know, the pressure is less. Um, you know, and I encourage people to go to you know, to find their you know, local landscapes where they can go back and learn the light and dive into it, you know, thoroughly over maybe years. So yeah, it's about the experience. And then when I, I see something that strikes me, I, I, you know, I'll get my camera out and it's, it's just a matter of, you know, people ask me this and I, I go, what is it that strikes me? And it's, and what I say is that it's, that I always find something that amazes me that pattern, that uh, texture of grass, that cloud peeling off of a cliff. And so I just get thrilled and excited and energized just by what I'm seeing. And, you know, at least half the time I can't figure out a photograph to to capture it. It's not uh, everything we see that's beautiful or interesting or, you know, we want to make it become a photograph doesn't always work. So it's it's a matter of being playful and and flowing through, you know, that response. And sometimes it works out photographically, you know, all the elements come together and sometimes it doesn't. So we're going deep into your mind again here. Do you consciously think about composition during the time of the capture or are you just simply deferring to what feels right in the viewfinder? I'm consciously paying attention to what feels right. So, so yeah, so it's it's a, a matter of spacing, like uh, where I'm standing. Uh, I have a group of trees. I, I I respond to it and put my camera down, but I rarely stay in the same spot until I, you know, get the right spacing between trees. Or um, uh, if I have a reflection of El Capitan in the river and I have grasses along the river in front of me, I'm I'm maneuvering to find a a good balance of spacing. 
and in in terms of composition, I think a lot about proportion. There, mm -hmm. there are places in the photograph that have more value than others, and I find it in the in a lot of work I look at. There's, you know, maybe a a full quarter or a third of an image is is sort of non-functional, should I say, compositionally. So I'm I tend to crop very tightly, uh, just to try to simplify. So that's that's part of my process is getting into the uh, the essence, as the phrase goes, of, of what I'm responding to. Although what you've learned about composition has now been incorporated into how you see, how you see the world, so that when you're actually behind the camera, you're just deferring to what feels right based on how you've learned to see the world over the years and years and years of practicing photography. Yeah, it's a lot about trusting instincts. So if that, you know, if you've made photographs and seen the results, good or bad, and you keep learning for four decades like I have, then, you know, the, the process of making something intuitive so that the technical is is not in your head, then you have a direct, more direct connection to the subject. You have a, a really nice mix of both color and black and white images in your portfolio. So what is more common that you know at the time of the capture that the scene will end up as a monochrome image or you decide later during the processing stage where you're actually on the computer? Well, mostly after. Sometimes I'm I'm there and, and see the graphic shapes and, and I'm often trying to do that in color. Sometimes the color just is, you know, in the processing, I discover that the color really is, is distracting more than accentuating the mm -hmm. graphics of what I'm photographing. So it's more a afterwards process for me. There have been some situations in Yosemite where we had a, a major uh, pine beetle kill off where you could stand at tunnel view and, and a lot of the trees were orange because the, they had died recently. I have a few photographs that I always recall that I wanted. I knew I was going to convert to black and white because of that what I thought was an awful combination of dead trees and live trees and orange and green weirdness. So, so there are occasions I know it's going to be black and white. Can you describe how passion plays a part in your creation process? Well, that's, that's what I was saying a minute ago about getting excited about things. It's, it's just that I, I have a kind of broad natural history background and I don't analyze, you know, exactly what's going on in front of me, but uh, that education's given me a, a deep appreciation of just nature in general and and seeing ice patterns or seeing fog lifting off the the snow in Yosemite after a clear day, kind of a sublimation fog and and uh, you know those things. I couldn't give you a, a treatise on it, but I I have a deep appreciation for the processes in nature and and hopefully that comes through in the images. A photographer that perhaps is just as accomplished as you, but has spent their entire life doing architecture without a real appreciation for nature, could come to a place like Yosemite and not, even though they have all the technical skills, not be able to express the magic of Yosemite like you would, because you have a passion in the natural world, in wild landscapes, and vice versa, where you're obviously accomplished and you went to go do architectural photography, you probably would be able to express it like a 
architectural photographer would be because his passion is in that area. Well, I think I think that's mostly true. They're abstracts of architecture that I think, you know, uh, look very much like some of my ice photographs. There, there is some, you know, skill gained through either direction, architecture or nature, you know, that allow you to make a few photographs in the, in a different realm that are very successful. But I think what what helps people a lot is is uh, building depth in a body of work. And that this leads to to a mention of my newest book, which is about portfolio development. Why a, a subject like Yosemite or patterns in nature or things that I've built up over you know, over decades. So, Can you get the name of that book? We're going to talk about your books uh, later, but what is the name of that particular one? It's the Photographer's Portfolio Development Workshop. Got it. Got it. It just came out this year. It has uh, eight lessons in it. It's a course that I wrote for an online program called Better Photo back in the 2005. And it just takes you through a process of, of learning how to edit and refine themes and build depth in a theme that, that makes a more powerful statement than kind of a scattered group of unorganized photographs, even if they're all fantastic. So it's more of a editorial approach and a refinement approach. So back to the landscape versus architecture, it's that commitment to a to a theme idea that would make my landscape portfolio be successful and his architecture portfolio be successful just because of that concentration. Mm-hmm. And persistence. You've, you've said that persistence is also a key component in the creative process also. How does persistence a part of the creation process? It's a process of finding out what you love to do the most and, and coming up with some ideas for expressing the, the directions those, those passions take you. So you may right. take a few photographs that you love and, and just wander off and never come back to it. And, and that's fine. I have dozens of undeveloped portfolios and, and that's fine. But you know, part of what I talk about in the book is, is coming up with a title, for example. And it makes me think of my impressionistic work and realizing that a lot of people have done ICM type photography. And when I was doing this about 15 years ago, I, I didn't see a lot of uh, a depth of a portfolio. Like I knew lots of friends of mine that had great photographs and inspired me to pursue that direction. Uh, but I wanted to make it more of a uh, in-depth statement, you know. And I came up with a title called "Impressions of Light." It fit my my interest in impressionistic painting, and not that I'm that educated in it, but but it it moves me. And and then the title is a big factor of of generating an idea because it gives me direction and it gives the viewer. And the clues to what I'm talking about. And I don't mean a literal title like camera motion images, mm-hmm. but Impressions of Light has a more artistic way to com- convey the same thing. Can we go back just a second? You mentioned in the answer ICM photography. Can you explain to the audience what that is? Intentional camera motion is it. what it's what it's about. And, and it's uh, moving the camera during exposure. And Got that's it. the way of making a, a, making a painterly uh, type of photograph. So it's um, 
I was not aware of that that nomenclature for, for what I was doing, but uh, <laughs> most of us called it swipes or uh, yeah. DeWitt Jones called them drive-bys or everybody has some less than poetic ways of, of describing them, but ICM seems to be intentional camera motion seems to be what the general uh, category, yeah. One of my main portfolios is called Landscapes of the Spirit. And again, the title was something that it came to me and, and I, I was able to organize a lot of my intimate, more personal landscapes into a, a book that had focus on, on the value of experiencing beauty in nature. And that's one, that's just another example of a title and an idea that frames, uh, you know, a body of work and, and continues to grow. To the question, what's the most important aspect of photography? Is it composition, light, location, the right gear? Your answer is the photographer. Correct. Could you explain? Oh, it just uh, dawned on me long ago when I first started teaching photography that people wanted answers to, you know, how to take a photograph the one and only right way. And I was teaching for the Ansel Adams Gallery and taking groups of people out into the meadows of Yosemite. And standing before Yosemite Falls, people would ask me what shutter speed to use. And I was, like I said, my mid-20s, and I really, I really didn't want to answer the question. <laughs> and and the what I told people is that I want to teach you how to teach yourself what you like, not what I like. So from the very beginning, in, in the fact that I didn't want to give them a specific, that I would say, you know, try a bunch of shutter speeds. And that was in the film days. So that was a long process. You know, you try a bunch of shutter speeds and a week or two later, or the end of a vacation, you come back and get feedback on what worked. And maybe you made a note of it. Maybe you don't. Now it's, it's much more e easily done because you can see what, you know, one stop of shutter speed variation can make on moving water. Mm -hmm. So I just encourage people to embrace the process of teaching themselves what they like and, and not latching on to, well, you know, it's got to be about a quarter of a second, you know, to forget about it. You're good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, especially with digital, having been used a view, view camera for 20 years, I've just gone crazy the other direction. And you know, if I'm photographing waterfalls in Yosemite, I can take dozens, if not hundreds of images just playing. And I, I have my Sony camera set up to take uh, five frames at the same setting. Mm -hmm. So it just, I've clicked the shutter once and five frames pop up on the back of my mirrorless camera and and I can see the effect. And every one of them is different. So I have a lot more images to look at when I get back home but i have some some situations where that you know i've taken say 200 images and only one had the the texture that really struck me as as the best you can just the shutter speed can affect the emotional um, how you express yourself emotionally with just you know, moving water sometimes it's the, the, the smoother water is is a delicate fragile feel to it and the, the faster shutter speed uh, communicates power so yeah, there's 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 no right way. It's how you know your own emotional connection to the scene and how you want to express it makes sense to me. And the, the process of finding what you like is only 
you know, given by experimentation and being being willing to make mistakes. In other words, um, so that that playfulness is a is an idea that really came to me through listening to Jerry Ulstman give his lectures. His presentations of his work were a year of experimentation in the darkroom. So he would show a basic uh, Jerry Ulstman. For those who don't know, did compositing in the in the analog darkroom with multiple negatives and multiple enlargers. And he would take his photographs and then in the darkroom, he would just play with different combinations. And I, I showed him once a, uh, a glacial erratic, a big rock in Yosemite and, and uh, you know, he photographed it and took it home. And then, you know, he, he played with putting a, a Buddha face uh, blended into the rock or a, a doorway into the same rock and he would just play with various combinations and and his concept of play was was a powerful thing for me so if the photographer is the most important element what makes a william neal image a william neal image how would you describe him you you tell me <laughs> um, <laughs> well no. your your photographs are very expressive and that's the first word that comes to mind when I when I review your portfolio. They're very expressive. And your love for nature and wild places comes through loud and clear. And that's just something about you um, that tells me a lot about you. You know, I think it's it's generally uh, kind of a, a focus on uh, a part of nature that's that's excited me that kind of was presented in a, a quiet and clean design. And I don't know. I'm not sure how the emotion comes through. A quiet. That's a good. That's a good descriptive word for your work. Your, your work is quiet. Yeah, it's uh, my, you know, my favorite work that I that I make is is just that I kind of fell in love with what I was photographing and want to um, share it with others or remember it for myself. So you've done a, quite a bit of teaching. Do you believe in talent? Are some people born with the ability, even if it's latent, to create like William Neal? Or can do you think anyone can do this with enough passion, desire, dedication, hard work? Well, I think it's a mostly a combination of both, but but I I do teach that every one of us has a unique perspective. You know, valuing that and believing in that is part of the process, not being, you know, too influenced by other photographs that well, this is how Ansel would do it, so I'll frame it like this. It becomes a, a level of trusting your own instincts, and and it's hard to do that, and it's, it's very hard to teach it. Mm. But if you start with the, you have to start with a belief that you're artistic. I I don't know how many, you know, people I've taught that tell me they picked up a camera because they weren't artistic, and you know, and I ask them, what does that mean? That means you don't have an art, you don't have a unique perspective. I mean, that's all it, all it really is, is that you have somehow, whether it's latent or not, like you say, it's, it's in there somewhere and that, that belief has to, has to start the process. If you were 18 years old today with today's environment, technology, et cetera, and you just received your first camera with intentions of taking a photography seriously, what's the very first thing you would do knowing what you know now? Well, I would immerse myself in in images, learn about the history of your chosen subject, whatever it is. Uh, look at what the masters have done. Uh, take workshops, 
and take lots of photographs and make lots of mistakes. Um, mistakes is a good one. John Sexton had a, a phrase he always used in teaching was, the only difference between me and my students is that I've made more mistakes. Always like that. Did you have a photography mentor when you were learning? Not per se, in a, in a personal relationship sort of way, just, um, you know, in a collaborative sense. Um, friends of mine that that we all kind of grew up here in Yosemite, uh, Louis Kempeter, I, I mentioned, Michael Fry, okay. my friend uh, who worked for Ansel Chris Rainier was, was um, very encouraging to me in the early days. Uh, Jerry Yulsman was very encouraging to me in, in terms of just supporting what I was doing and li liking my work and for somebody of that stature to like my work was was a huge thing when I was starting out. What do you do on a day off, William? You, you're not picking up a camera. You're not going into your office. You're not turning on the computer to write or process images. How do you spend a day off? What? I don't take many days off. I <laughs> I've been All right, so it's a hypothetical question. <laughs> a hypothetical question. Uh, uh, I've been self-employed since 1984. So in some moment of just about every day, you know, my business comes to mind. My kids are in their early 20s. You know, I've spent the last 25 years raising a family. So I've been very active and, and mostly stayed home um, to be involved with that from, from dance recitals to, to soccer and baseball practice. And so family life just in that general sense is, is what occupies a lot of my time and 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 by choice. Okay, I want you to recommend two books for those uh, listening who might be trying to learn landscape photography. The first one is not going to be yours, and the second one will be a William Neal book. What do you got? Nice question. Um, I have a long list of, of books that have inspired me. I'd, I'd have to say Elliot Porter's Intimate Landscapes. I could see him in your work. Yeah, it's it was a big influence for sure. So that is a is a harder book to get, but you can get on Amazon and find it. It's it's out there. By modern standards, it's not always very well printed, but highly recommended. And now a William Neal book. The next book. <laughs> uh, I, I'm working on a new Yosemite book, but going back, um, I think the retrospective is is certainly the, the most complete collection of images, and that's out of print, so it's. It's a little hard to recommend it, but I think Light on the Landscape combines, you know, the, my writing and and my photography in a in a strong way. So I would say that's that's a good choice. And it's um, everything else except the last two books are are out of print. So, and folks, if you would like to purchase one of uh, William's books, and I strongly strongly encourage you to do this: peruse his image portfolios, his galleries, his images. You owe it to yourself to, to browse and study and look deep into his work. You can visit his website, williamneal.com. That's uh, Neil spelled N-E-I-L-L. -L. That's N-E-I-L-L, -L, williamneal.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at WG Neal. And Instagram is William Neal. William Bill, sir, I can't thank you enough for joining me here today. It's been a tremendous pleasure and an honor. Yeah, I greatly appreciate it. Uh, can I mention a couple things just quickly at the end? Absolutely. The The newest book, since we talked about developing themes, is 
proven to be quite helpful when I taught it as an online course. And um, I've gotten a lot of feedback from people that it's really helping them organize their work. So take a look at that. And, and also... Um, and the name on that one again. The Photographer's Portfolio Development Workshop. And that's also on williamneal.com. Yeah. The last two books are published by Rocky Nook. I can give you a discount code for um, for 40% off of those two books by Rocky. Let's have it. W-N-E-I-L-L-40. W-N-E-I-L-L-40. There you have it. There you have it. Um, he's a master, landscape master, one of my favorite landscape photographers. Again, Bill, appreciate you coming on. Thank you, Richard. We'll have to get together someday. You've been listening to Beyond the Lens with me, Richard Burnaby. Thank you to my guest, William Neal, for a fascinating conversation. And thanks to you, of course, for listening. Tweet me at Burnaby Photo with any suggestions or feedback. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and a rating on Spotify or wherever you enjoy listening to your podcasts. I'd love to hear what you think about the show and what you would like to see from Beyond the Lens in the future. You can sign up to receive an email when a new episode drops at our website, beyondthelens.fm. Here's to truth, adventure, and passion. See you next time. Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by podcast partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com.